We're going to start our story today in New York. Maybe it was late 2015. I was running a blog about New York City, and um, it was about the locals of New York and the regulars that visit coffee shops a lot. And so I was talking to random people. I was going a lot to downtown Manhattan, and I came across this poster, and it was on a bus stop, but it was graffitied over, so I wasn't really able to tell what it said. But all I could make out of it was that it said Little Syria. And that confused me. This is reporter Hagarud Das telling the story of Little Syria to producer Alex Atak. Hagar is an Egyptian-American. She was born in Cairo, raised in New York. If you're Arab and you grow up in New York, you know all the Arab spots in the city. So you know Astoria and you know New Jersey, Patterson, New Jersey. But this was something that I had never heard of before. Oh, so this phrase Little Syria was something that was totally new to you? I had never heard of it before. When I heard of it, I actually thought it still existed. So Hagar, who lives in New York City herself now, started to look into this supposed place called Little Syria. She Googled it, and one of the first things that came up was this place called Sahadi's, which turned out to be a grocery store in Brooklyn. It was about a 40-minute train ride away, so Hagar hopped on the subway. I'm about to go into Sahadi's right now. When you first walk in, the first thing I noticed was that there were these really large brass plates hung up by, like, the cash register. And um, they have aisles upon aisles of, like, pickles and spices. Um, They have loose-leaf tea, and they have a pretty big olive oil selection. They have hummus. And um, there was this woman behind the counter who was um, spreading zatar on bread. And then there was this speaker that I stood underneath for a while. It was playing old Arabic songs. A little history for here. We, the Sahadi family has been in business in the United States since 1895, when my father's uncle or my great uncle Abraham started a Sahadi and company on Washington Street on the lower west side of Manhattan. My dad, Wade, came to America in 1920 to work with his uncle and to make some money to send back to the family in Zahli, Lebanon. This is Charlie Sahadi, who owns and operated the business until he retired in 2016. His children are now the ones running the show. Hi, Ron? Are you Ron? I am. Oh, hi. Um, I spoke to your dad, Charlie. I'm doing a story on the store. Um, Uh, He worked with his uncle from 1920 to 1941 when they split apart and my dad opened Sahadi Importing Company in Manhattan in 1941. And after their breakup, which really wasn't the most amicable, they became two companies using really similar names. A Sahadi and Company, the original business, which was owned by Abraham, and Sahadi Importing, which was owned by Charlie's dad, Wade. But with him, there was a problem. He and his wife evidently were very, very upset about what my dad did uh, or what the uncle did with my dad. Again, I can't even say who, who pushed who to do what. I mean, I wasn't there. I mean, I wasn't born yet. So Charlie's great-uncle's business ended up being dissolved in 1985. And so his father's Sahadis, that's the only one that remains today since their split in 1941. Shortly after the split, though, in 1948, Sahadi importing followed its customers and they moved from Washington Street in Little Syria to Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. 
And Charlie started working with his dad over the weekends when he was about 16. This was back in the early 60s. Through the years, the Sahadi started offering more foods, not just Arab products, not products just from the Middle East. And so their customer base really widened. But the store still has that old school mom and pop shop feel to it. Before the pandemic came, I was going in basically on Tuesdays and it was people coming. Charlie's here today, right? It's Tuesday. So they come in to see me and I I'd buzz my wife upstairs in the office as she was doing some work. And I say, honey, I just got my 40th hug today. And she said, you counted them? I said, every one of them. Sahadi's is the last remnants of what was once a thriving Arab neighborhood in New York. So much so that it was known as New York's Syrian colony, actually. Now relocated to Brooklyn, the grocery store is really the only thing left of the Syrian colony in the U.S. But in the 19th and 20th centuries, thousands of people from what was called Greater Syria at the time had migrated over and settled in these New York streets. This week, a nearly forgotten story about Arab migration to the United States and a neighborhood known as Little Syria. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Here's Hagar. So right now I'm standing in front of the three remaining buildings of Little Syria. I'm standing right in front of St. George's Church, uh, which right now is St. George's Bar and Restaurant. And it seems busy. There's like people going in and out of it. On the right hand is a Holiday Inn. It's a really, really tall Holiday Inn. I can't even see the end of it looking up. And then on the left of the chapel is 105 Washington Street, which was the community center. And um, looking at it, I can see these Buddha engravings on it. Um, I believe it turned into a Buddhist center after the Syrians left. So that street that I'm describing, that's Washington Street. And that was the heart of Little Syria. Right now, it's right near the World Trade Center and the 9-11 Museum. It's on the Lower West Side of Manhattan. And it was home to new immigrant communities to the U.S. from the late 1800s to the 1960s. I realized that the Syrian colony of Manhattan, which was down the Lower West Side of Manhattan, had never been studied. That's Linda Jacobs. And the audio wasn't great because the day that I interviewed her happened to also be the day that there was construction in her building. But anyways... So she's the author of Strangers in the West, which is one of the very few books about the history of Little Syria in the late 1800s. Back then, the neighborhood wouldn't have been referred to as Little Syria, at least not by the Syrians. They would have called it the Syrian colony or the Syrian quarter. Lots of people have studied the Brooklyn colony, which was later, but the the colony on the lower west side of Manhattan had never been studied, studied, and that's where all my grandparents lived. So I started looking at that and realized that I should do some research. Okay, and side note here. When we say Syrian, we mean people who are from what was then greater Syria, which today is Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Palestine. Anyone who came into the port of New York got off at what was then Castle Clinton and then became in 1892 Ellis Island, the places where they debarked and landed at Battery Park. And all you have to do is walk across Battery Park 
and there you are at the foot of Washington Street, and that was the Syrian colony. So it was a three-minute walk from getting off the boat to being surrounded by Arabic and Arabs. It's, it's really quite astonishing. So these early immigrants from greater Syria, they were mainly Christian along with other religious minorities like Druze and Jews, but they weren't leaving only because of religious persecution back home, which at the time was under Ottoman rule. The region was going through an economic downfall. The silk industry was collapsing and there was a civil war in 1860 between the Druze and the Maronite Christians and the Great Famine of Mount Lebanon from 1915 to 1918. And the arrival to what they hoped would be a better life wasn't really always what they expected. And they lived in tenements that were horrible. They were old, early 19th century townhouses that had been broken up into tiny cubicles, many windowless, no indoor plumbing, no bathrooms, no, the privies were outside in the, in the stable yard in the back. And sometimes five, seven, eight, nine, ten people in a small room, eight by eight feet. In, in diameter with no window and no water. But most managed to make ends meet. Some of them took jobs in factories, and many more became peddlers. They sold shoelaces and stockings, some household items, goods from the Holy Land, and some jewelry. And so by 1920, these few blocks on the Lower West Side of Manhattan, they became properly known as the Syrian Colony. So walking down Washington Street, you would have seen groups of men wearing fezes. They were huddled around record players playing Arabic classics. And there were street vendors selling gak from little carts. Restaurants everywhere up and down the street. And their windows would be lined with freshly baked betlewa in these gold trays. It's like it pulls at every nostalgic's heart, I think, looking at these photos. There were these women called Ladies of the Road. They were called that by an American newspaper reporter. That was not a Syrian term, that was an American term. And they were a particular kind of peddler. They would go to a resort hotel, rent a room, and set it up as a showroom and sell Turkish, what they call Turkish goods. And those were expensive things. Those were damask, cloths, embroideries, sometimes even carpets brass, sometimes things of brass. So they might stay in a hotel room for two weeks, sell to everyone who came by, and then move on. So for about 50 years, from the 1880s to 1940, Little Syria was a lively hub for Syrian-American life here in the States. And we know stories like the one Linda just told about the ladies of the road because they were documented and they were documented well, giving historians a look inside the neighborhood's vibrant day-to-day life. Fortunately for the Little Syria community, we do have a good amount of evidence based in the newspapers. This is Todd Fine. He's the president of the Washington Street Advocacy Group, which does preservation work in lower Manhattan, especially in the Little Syria neighborhood. Um, Because there was this robust Arabic language journalism scene in Little Syria. So we can learn a lot about the communities, life and families and different businesses through um, these newspapers. So we're talking in the 1950s, and the number of Syrians living in the U.S. at that time were about 100,000. So it's a small community, and they managed to publish more than 60 newspapers and magazines and literary journals. And most of that was coming out of the little Syrian neighborhood in New York. What you find is that they are answering a need. They're there 
because people want news. They want news at two fronts. One, what is going on back home? That's Dr. Akram Khatir. He's a professor of history at North Carolina State University, and he's also the director of the Khairallah Center for Lebanese Diaspora Studies. It's an organization that documents and archives the history of Lebanese immigration to the United States. For their audience, they wanted to know what is going on in Syria, what is going on in Egypt, what is going on in the Ottoman Empire as a whole. And after the 1920s, what is going on in the independent nations that are created in the Middle East? The things people cared about at the time in Little Syria were things like the rise of cholera cases back home. Uh, a news headline from August 1892 reads, We'll help cholera germs. It was about lemons. Another headline reads, Some points in Syrian etiquette. There was another I came across in archives that read, The outrages on the Syrian colony, which was about local crime in the neighborhood. So you can imagine somebody sitting in Elk City, Oklahoma, near the Texas movement, and somebody sitting in Los Angeles, and somebody sitting in uh, Lawrence, Massachusetts. And they're all reading the same issue, and they're reading the same news. They're reading letters to the editor, they're reading editorials and arguments, they're reading uh, new, you know, serialized novels by Ani Rehani, or poems by Jibran uh, Khalil Jibran, or news about weddings or funerals. So what you see is this newspaper has become essential for building a sense of community. A sense of community across cultures, too. Newspapers played a huge role at the time. I learned of a newspaper called Kalkab America, which had Arabic and English articles. It was a main source for English news outlets to stay updated on news from the Middle East. It had readers who were Syrian-American living in the Syrian colony, non-Arabs living in the U.S., and it even reached readers back home in greater Syria. I found its first ever publication, dated April 15, 1892. I want to read to you an excerpt because I think it gives us a glimpse into the lives of the newly arrived immigrants trying to build a new home in America. Here it is, and I'm trying to read it how I imagined they wrote it back then. Quote, From time immemorial, a wide gulf has separated the nations of the East from those of the West. And this has been the result of diametrically opposite conceptions of character, of customs and civilization entertained by each toward the other all arising from ignorance of the nature and condition of the respective peoples. It is an undoubted fact that the Western man does not understand the Oriental as the latter really is, and persists in placing him in an imaginary sphere utterly at a variance with the reality. Why, then, do these races misunderstand each other? What are the causes of indifference and apathy? Why do they not know each other better? The answer is simple, because of the entire absence of suitable mediums and communications between them. End quote. This kind of writing from Little Syria was part of a larger movement called the Mahjar Literary Movement, or the Migrant Literary Movement. So some of the most famous books we know by Arab authors over the last hundred years, they were written in Little Syria. For example, the Book of Khalids by Amin Rahani and Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. And there was also Elia Boumadzi, who was exiled by the Ottoman authorities. He came to America in 1912, and four years later, he became the editor of Mirat al-Gharb, it was one of the leading Arabic-language newspapers in New York at the time. He, he'd write any time of the day or night, literally. That's Dr. Robert Madzi. He's the son of Ilya Boumadzi, and he's probably the last remaining person who knew a member of the literary movement in Little Syria. If he had a, a thought, if there was some activity in the community or, or elsewhere, uh, that was really important. Uh, and he had a strong opinion on it. It didn't just reside with him. It went to the point where he'd wake up at night and he'd start writing. 
and he'd write on anything. In 1929, Elia Abumadi started his own periodical, El Samir. He continued to publish it until his death in 1957, which makes it one of the longest-running Arabic newspapers of the era. His work had a tremendous impact, not only on the diaspora, but it found its way back home. His poetry was turned into music, and it was sung by the Arab world's most iconic artists, like Muhammad Abdul Wahab and Abdul Halim Hafiz and Fayrouz. I think what's so powerful about the literary movement in Little Syria is that the work writers like Ilya Abu Mazi and his colleagues left behind, their poems and their letters and their speeches, they're some of the ways we remember Little Syria and those early migrants today, even if the physical neighborhood is not recognizable anymore. He had a great run. He'll be remembered for many, many, many years to come. He wrote from his heart and he wrote so people could understand him. People enjoyed his poetry because it was, his response was simple. Do you have a favorite poem of his? It, it doesn't, that's what it is. It is my favorite. I think he wrote that for my mother. I'm going to read it for you now. Quote, Will you lose anything for being cheerful, friend? There's no danger in parting your lips. Your face will not disfigure if you smile. Laugh, for the stars laugh when night is darkest. It is for this reason we love the stars. End quote. And with that bit of poetry, we'll be back after the break. When we left off, it was, I would say, 1930s. Little Syria's literary movement was booming. Today, not much of the neighborhood remains. By the 20s and 30s, Syrian Americans were making more money. And so naturally, they, they wanted bigger houses and better schools for their kids, maybe some greenery in the neighborhood. But some stayed behind, and the neighborhood continued. But by 1940, the construction of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, which was a tunnel connecting Brooklyn to Lower Manhattan, had started. And the few Syrian businesses and residents that remained in Little Syria were forced out to make way for the project. So there were no more Syrians left in Little Syria. The final blow to what was left of the physical landscape of the neighborhood, though, came in the 1960s when the World Trade Center construction began. So it, it was, we're kind of talking about cultures kind of being erased or built on top of, but in this case, it was like literally just built on top of. This is me talking to producer Alex Atak again. We're talking about a century-old cornerstone from a Syrian church that was found in 2002. It was found underneath the rubble of the World Trade Center. It wasn't moved out of the way, it wasn't preserved, it wasn't kind of taken care of. It was just like flattened and built on top of. Yeah, and I, I don't know how that would have happened, but I'm a, like the assumption is that when they were constructing the World Trade Center in the 60s, this was just kind of left over. <laughs> and um, it only appeared after the 9-11 attacks and, you know, everything had flattened. Um, so it was found in the rubble. Today, if you visit Little Syria, or what's left of it, there are three buildings standing side by side. There's the community house, which has been empty for decades, a tenement building, and St. George's Syrian Catholic Church. The church has already gained landmark status, while Todd and other preservationists are trying to landmark the other two. So what landmark status is, is the city saying that the buildings are too historically significant to be demolished or changed in any way. But in this case, the city would really only be landmarking the exterior of the buildings, meaning that the interiors could be used in whatever way the owners wanted to. From my perspective, it's not just 
that this particular downtown community house um, is an extraordinary building or it, its history is so central to the little serious story. It's the overall streetscape of what's left. This is Todd again. We're talking about a neighborhood that has had dozens and dozens of dozens of buildings destroyed, both from the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, the World Trade Center, and this new construction. I think the part that confused me the most in reporting this story is that we're taught that if we document our lives and if we were to be successful in doing that, everything else would like fall into place and our experience would remain a part of history forever. But somehow, when Little Syria was destroyed, its existence was almost entirely forgotten. To the point that me, as an Arab American who's lived in New York her entire life, I had to find out about it through this random poster in the street. I think the more that they can tell a story about why people came there and what that neighborhood has meant to people and how people have transitioned from that neighborhood or been successful, that will become an asset for the neighborhood um, and for immigrants. Uh, And it, it also helps protect them against charges that they are, you know, they should be banned or that they're not loyal because they can point to these examples of how they succeeded. That's important. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a tactic in the American ethnic political battles is to have tell positive stories about your contributions to the country. And neighborhoods are a very effective way to do that because Americans attach this romantic identity with neighborhoods as a rite of passage to becoming American. I spoke to Michael Higgins, and he works at the Brooklyn Anti-Gentrification Network. What is that, the Brooklyn Anti-Gentrification Network? So it's a group of organizations, and they basically work together to save Brooklyn from being overly gentrified. And um, it's a group of organizations that come together, and they try to find solutions for gentrification. The prices of real estate in Brooklyn are really rising, and People aren't able to live there anymore, and the local businesses, they're going out of business. I was talking to him about landmarking and how it can take up to decades to landmark just one building, and basically asking him why it's worth it. He told me that it's just proof that a community existed. So even though today, like when I walk past that neighborhood, when I walk past Washington Street, There's no real signs that that was Little Syria. I wouldn't even be able to tell walking by it. There was a community there, and they were Syrian, and they work there, and they live their lives there. And so he was telling me that even though it takes such a long time to landmark one building, it's this physical proof that these people existed, and they've lived their lives in these buildings. The problem is we are... uh marginalized. This is Dr. Akram of the Khairallah Center again. In fact, I would say even beyond marginalized, we are completely elided, completely kept out from the history of America. If you look at any history textbooks, college or K-12, that deal with American history, you will not find the presence of Arabic-speaking populations or Arabs. You won't find them. They're not there. They don't appear there. Even when they're talking about immigrants and immigration, they're not there. That uh, illusion out of the history of America is a real problem because we appear as if we just simply popped up right after 9-11 or shortly before. Not that we have been here for 150 years. I went to a high school where we did four years of American history versus other high schools in America where you do one year. And um, so it was very intense on history. And we did immigration stories. We studied immigration stories and the Arab immigration story was never part of that. 
speaking to Dr. Akram of the Khairallah Center, he was telling me that till this day, in most history books, the Arab immigration story is just not part of the story. It's not part of history. In researching this story, a lot of what I read painted Little Syria with a nostalgic and honestly sometimes romantic brush. When actually, if I think about what really happened here, it's what happens to most immigrant communities. When you move to a new country, you're likely going to settle with people who are like you, right? In New York, that's why we have Chinatown and Little Italy and Little Syria. These neighborhoods are often cheaper to live in. They're steeped in your culture and your food and your language. When you start to make more money, you'll move away, just like all of the Syrians did from Little Syria. And often what happens is more Syrians then move in. But in this case, they didn't. There was a quota that lasted 40 years, until the 1960s. It limited the number of Syrians who could resettle in the U.S. And there was a ton of construction, and the neighborhood just kind of got destroyed, really. We have worked in America's factories. We have helped uh, construct American societies. Uh, we have fought in America's wars. And, you know, we have gone on to have, you know, doctors and engineers and so on and so forth, as well as merchants and workers. That is, we are part of the very fabric of America, and we've shaped it in profound ways. All these elements are not there because we are not part of American history. And I think that's a big problem. And yet, in the midst of this deliberate and sometimes non-deliberate forgetfulness of Arab history in America is a drive to be recognized, and much like the generation before us, much like Ilya Abu Mazi, actually. Writers today are using the arts to revive our storytelling, to establish our history and our existence in this country. Welcome to Little Syria, a show about a show in a part of town that doesn't have much left to show for it. My name is Omar Afendim, and I am a Syrian-American rapper and poet based in Los Angeles, California. Omar, along with two other Arab-American artists, thanks Joey and Ronnie Mali, wrote and produced an album they're calling Little Syria. They performed it live a few times. We made money, wrote anthems, sewed dresses, ate lamb, drank coffee, rolled grape leaves, had babies, got scammed, built houses of worship, parlors and pool halls, rubbed elbows with Italian and Irish kids in school halls, worked with... The Little Syria Project is essentially my way of bridging um, the success of Hamilton, a hip-hop theater piece that explored uh, aspects of American history through rap on stage, uh, with my love for the traditions of the Hakawati uh, in Damascus, which is the poetic storytelling tradition uh, that we have. There was life here. First Nations will attest to that. We were just the latest wave of foreigners to come along and redress the map, a short-lived experience for us Syrians, five decades to be exact, as real estate interests in the colony slowly but surely closed the gap. And so combining Hamilton and Hakawati by telling the story of the very first Syrian and Lebanese immigrants and Arabic-speaking immigrants who came to America, Hamilton, the famous Broadway play by Lin-Manuel Miranda, telling the story of Alexander Hamilton, one of America's founding fathers. My intention is really to just uplift these voices and kind of brush the dust off this forgotten aspect of New York history, of American history, and make it something that folks can then rally around and be interested. The 
We are a people who move, always have, always will be As wave after wave of invaders try to kill we Romans, Persians, Mongols and Crusaders Turkmen, Frenchmen, countless other raiders Look, that's why I keep my boots out Waiting by the door, but you could never tear my roots out Of this you can be sure Syrian to the You know, I'd spent so much time studying uh, Arabic poetry in my life And being exposed to it And to the work of uh, Shara al-Mahjar, the, the migrant poets uh, the main book of poetry that inspired the theme of, of the project, Diwan Abu Madi, Ili Abu Madi's classic sort of poetic compilation. Um, I remember seeing it growing up as a kid in my house. I remember my mom reading from it to me and taking notes in it. And I started seeing little lines that were highlighted by my mother. They were just so poignant because she was drawn to um, the lines that referenced uh, life in the States more explicitly especially as it compared to life back home in Syria or Lebanon. Uh, and I found that really fascinating, you know, because those were the lines that were actually very integral to the research that I was doing for this project as well. Uh, so she kind of did the work for me. From across the river, inspiring this one poet to write the following verse as he gazed across the skyline late one night. وتولت على نيويورك السكينة وجفوني بغمضها مستهينة لا ترى غير طيف تلك الحزينة لست أعني لست أعني لست أعني بها سوى سوريا I'm reflecting on a lot of these issues in a very similar way that these writers were, but just a hundred years later. To the extent that when I read a poem like Dead Are My People by Khalil Gibran, it feels almost as if it were written today. Gibran's Dead Are My People makes it clear that he was living in the West. But when I speak to people who know his work, that detail seems to be lost on them, myself included. Before coming into this story, I had never really made the connection that he spent the larger part of his life in America, and he was writing mainly from New York. I don't want to say it feels like something I would have written, but kind of, <laughs> in the sense that, you know, understanding that we are in this uh, incredibly privileged position compared to our, you know, fellow countrymen back back home. I believe the words used were, you know, they sleep upon soft beds and smile at the days while the days smile upon them, uh, you know, and they're wholly unaware of, of this sort of struggle that I'm having inside uh, as my my motherland is being you know torn apart by violence and famine etc so so yeah there's a lot of connections both past and present you know they were american at the end of the day and they were so deeply influenced by their life in new york or in other places and so uh, i think it was a shame that for so long people here in america just didn't know about this about about these writers about this incredible work that they had been creating and publishing and it was just simply a matter of just the you know the language barrier and so to be in the position that I've been in I'm translating the work of Arab poets and writers and turning it into rap music that is digestible for American audiences or at least relatable you know felt like I was uniquely positioned to be able to take on a project like this it felt like not just an opportunity but in some ways a responsibility because truly, you could spend a lifetime digging into their work and still, you know, not be done. Legacy and history are passed on from one generation to the next. 
And the fear is, I think, especially for communities who've been marginalized, that it just takes one generation, one person to skip passing the torch, and it could all be gone. There's always office to buy a building. People call me all the time. This is Charlie Sahadi again, the owner of Sahadi's, the last remaining store from Little Syria. Still now, I'm retired, and I get at least two or three people a week send me emails or call me on the phone. We'd like to buy your property on Atlantic Avenue. I said, that's out of the question. This episode was produced by Hagrid Das with editorial support from Alex Atak, Tamara Rasamni, Zaina Duidar, Nadine Shaker, and Dana Balut. Sound design by Mohamed Khezat and Tamara Rasamni, and fact checking by Dina Salem. Bella Ibrahim is our wonderful marketing director, and Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. <laughs> If you like today's episode, please do us a solid and rate us on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. These kinds of ratings really help boost our visibility in the podcast library so other listeners can find out about these stories. Fast asleep are all the people in this beautiful city and falling upon New York a feeling of tranquility. Yet my eyelids... A special thanks to Charlie Sahadi, Dr. Robert Maldi, Bob Maldi, Linda Jacobs, Todd Fine, Omar Afendam, Hani Bowardi, Dr. Akram Khatur, Rana Abdul Hamid, Michael Higgins, Joe Svelek, Mary Ann DiNapoli, Georgette Sahadi, Joanne Newman, and Alice Lesperance for contributing to today's story. Another special thanks and shout out to Omar Afendam, thanks Joey and Ronnie Mali for letting us use some snippets of their Little Syria project. We'll be back next week with another story. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you.